Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had yeah. been, been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare, Maintain Excellence. 
Then I hit a hole going into the corner sideways, and I rolled the car, landed back on the wheels, and I still finished second in that race. I wasn't too interested if I didn't make enough money to live uh, a decent life. He went up over the back end of my car and got my shoulder. I had two tire marks on my shoulder up there. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. Steve, you and I had the chance a few weeks back to talk with Paul Goldsmith. And Mr. Goldsmith, (laughs) he has this incredible story. He has raced thoroughbred horses. He has raced motorcycles for the Harley-Davidson Company. He's raced stock cars. He's raced Indy cars. Basically, anything that would go fast, he's raced. That's exactly right. And he owned a bunch of Burger King at one time. And now you're talking my <laughs> language. <laughs> and he also won the final race on the old Daytona Beach and Road Course. He also won a qualifying race at the big track, what we now know as Daytona International Speedway. So he is the only driver to have won at both places. Now, the thing about him is that he is 95 years young. And he still seems to be going strong. Amazing that Paul is still, Mr. Goldsmith, excuse me, <laughs> is still, <laughs> still very, very much with us at 95 years old. I hope I'm that sharp when I'm 55, much less 95. <laughs> no, no hope, no hope. <laughs> now, with all that being said, Mr. Goldsmith's NASCAR career, it ended well before Grand National Scene started. And it ended well before even you started covering the sport. So that's, look, all joking aside, that's been a while ago. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I thought what we might want to do in order to fully discuss Mr. Goldsmith's career, I wanted to turn to a friend of mine who I would consider to be one of the sport's foremost historians, especially from the era that we discussed with Mr. Goldsmith, the early NASCAR days, my friend, my compatriot, Buzz McKim. Buzz, how are you doing, my friend? Rick, Steve, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on board. Well, Buzz, look, we talked very briefly before we started recording, but how are you doing, man? Long time no see. It has been a while. I've been kind of out of the uh, out of the loop for about three years. I retired from the NASCAR Hall of Fame back in uh, September of 2017. Moved back to Daytona, where I was from. My wife is very happy. She doesn't have to worry about cold weather. So uh, happy wife, happy life, you know. And uh, I got my own uh, podcast we do every week from the North Turn Restaurant down in Pontsinglet. And I uh, just kind of put her around the house. Um, Doing uh, some, oh, I'll tell you what, here's some, uh, if you can see it okay. This right here is a picture of Bobby Allison's 1968 Torino. I don't know if it shows up all right, but a friend yeah. of mine has found that car and has restored it. And I, uh, I'm just about done doing all the lettering on that car, doing all the sign painting. So I should be finishing that up on Wednesday. So that car should be hitting the, the show car scene. And uh, so, uh, yeah, a little artwork here, a little painting there and, you know, every once in a while I get questions from folks, you know, looking for answers for things, you know, like radio contests. <laughs> now, what's his, ha- what's his hand painting on a race car that you're talking? What is that? 
Yeah, it's, uh, I, I huh? had a sign business. Yeah, I, I was a sign painter for about 25, 30 years. And uh, I used to do all the Coca-Cola signs here in Daytona, all the beach wagons, all the concession stands down there, uh, all the work for Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And I've done uh, probably a 1,000 race cars since I was about 14 years old when I got started. It's I all hand-painted with, wow. with brush and paint. If you look at any of the old Wood Brothers cars that they've restored, I lettered all those for them. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Best well, man, what, what are you hand-painting them for? Why don't you just get a wrap like everybody else does? Ah, well, see, that's the thing, though. They don't want it like that. They want it authentic. <laughs> they want it like the old hand-painted where you go out and you find an old drunk, you know, you give him a six-pack and you just let him go to town. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, it sounds like you are doing great, and I am so thankful for that. Man, you have been a good friend of mine for a long time because of that shared passion for NASCAR history. Man, I got to tell you, I really respect what you do. Well, thank you so much. I feel the same way about both of you guys. And I, I look at some of the old scenes that I have and look at some of the uh, uh, kind of strange situations that, Steve, you got yourself into over the years, and I'm going, man, that guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Steve? No, no. no. No comment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve and Buzz, that's what we're going to do in our first segment. We are going to share the interview that Steve and I did with Paul Goldsmith, and then we're going to visit with Buzz to kind of break down Mr. Goldsmith's career. And then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the May 8th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene. I tweeted our friend Robin Scarberry about a random date, and... (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how I feel about this, but May 8th, 1980, the exact date of this issue was the day that Robin was born. So he didn't need to exactly point out that I'm that old. (laughs) (laughs) I remember 1980 all too well. Well, I do too. I I was with Scene in 1980. Matter of fact, no, I take that back. It was one year before I joined Scene in 1981. But this particular race, I did cover this race, and it was a doozy. Well, this issue carried coverage of Buddy Baker's fourth win at Talladega, and it was a great finish between Buddy Baker and Dale Earnhardt, and that was one part of the story. But the other part of the story was that this was a race that saw nearly half the field bow out with blown engines. Now, going into the race, the issue had been tires. Everybody was kind of worried about what the tires were going to do turned out that tires were not a factor, I guess because everybody was blowing their engines before the tires had a chance to have a problem. Well, that was one of the problems back then that the teams faced at Daytona and Talladega was engine wear. Engines were known to blow up at both of those tracks pretty regularly because the technology back then is not what it is today. Blown engines do happen today, but they're rare as opposed to 1980 when they raced at Daytona and Talladega. Those problems pretty much have been solved. Yeah, but you're right, though. I mean, it's amazing how few engines that you see blow nowadays. It's very, very rare. Buzz, you remember at Martinsville, it was always brakes. Oh, gosh, yes. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. Yeah, they, they've learned how to save their brakes, that's for right. sure. Yeah. Who was it? Bobby Hamilton had a light on his dashboard. Every time that he hit the brakes and the turns at Martinsville, the light would come on on the dashboard, and then when he let off, Oh, is that right? It would go out. And that was his signal. That was a reminder for him to lay off the brakes at Martinsville. Yeah. 
I'm sure when you run out of breaks at Martinsville, you certainly know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's for sure. <laughs> and listeners, if you could, if you're able, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support our sponsor, QWare, and support Brian Kelb. Every little bit helps, and every little bit we appreciate. And you can support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. I was saying earlier that I was talking to a friend of mine this morning and he's been in love with racing since the 1950s. And I told him that I was interviewing you today and he got excited about that. I thought that he was going to invite himself to do the interview with us. <laughs> well, I did a lot of racing. My golly. Yes, sir. <laughs> I started on the motorcycles for years for Harley Davidson. And I started dabbling with uh, stock cars and pretty soon I'm going full bore with the stock cars. So there's one more other racing deal that I did quite a while. I was in the standard racehorses for a few years with a friend and and I drove them too. (laughs) Well, (laughs) just can't keep up with you, sir. Uh, the horses was a lot of work to uh, to drive them. It was, uh, I don't know, you had to be pretty careful with it. Exactly. Well, Mr. Goldsmith, just to start off with, at what point did you realize that you liked to go fast? Because obviously that's something that you did for a long time, and it must have started out at a, at a young age, You like you mentioned. Uh, you, you race motorcycles, then you did cars, you did horses. So obviously at some point you realized that you like to go fast. When did that happen? Well, that, uh, that'll happen when you can make a, a living doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> that's about the way I would phrase it because, uh, I wasn't too interested if I didn't make enough money to live uh, a decent life. So I just kept moving up from the, mo- the horses to the motorcycle and, uh, and the stock cars. The stock cars was the biggest thing for me. Right. How did you get into motorcycle racing? As I recall, weren't you working for Chrysler at one time? Yeah, I used to work for Chrysler. But how I got involved with motorcycle racing I got a phone call one time from Walter Davidson from Harley Davidson Motorcycle Company, and he wanted me to come over and and meet with him. So I went over there and and uh, I think I had lunch with him, Walter and Bill Davidson, and they wanted me to race them motorcycles a lot more than I was. So they supplied me with a lot more parts. Engines and things like that, and uh, I just raced more races. I just spread out, went traveling a little further. I lived in Michigan at the time, and uh, my God, I was traveling clear the West Coast to to race. 
Now you mentioned the fact that you started dabbling in stock car racing in the early 1950s. How did that come about? Well, there was a race going to be held at uh, Detroit Fairgrounds. It's a mild dirt track. And uh, a guy asked me to drive his car. I said, oh, sure, I'd love to do that. So I got in his car, and we won the race. And that's the first race that I was ever in in a stock car. I think it was 250-mile track. Uh, it was a mile track on dirt. It's a fairgrounds in Detroit. But that's what really started me in stock car business. When I, when I did that, it wasn't too long after that that I got a call from Smokey Unique from Daytona. And uh, I was going to be racing the motorcycles down there. And he wanted to know if I'd come down early and practice in one of his cars. And maybe would uh, take and race it. And uh, I was on the beach at that time. And they'd race on A1A and on the highway and then go out on the beach and race two miles back north. And so I, I got to drive his stock car at that time, too. Take uh, some adaptation to go from motorcycles to stock cars. So how much of an adjustment was it for you to go from motorcycle racing to stock car racing? Alice, the motorcycle racing was, uh, I'm going to say, a little more work than driving a, a race car. I mean, you're out in the open, and you've got to be a little more careful. It's, uh, it's just a little bit different driving a motorcycle on these here dirt tracks and, and just keep from breaking a leg or something anyway. <laughs> now, you ran stock cars in both the USAC and NASCAR ranks. How much of a difference was there between the two sanctioning bodies at that time? Uh, there was a tremendous amount of difference for fans and uh, uh, the, all this stock car racing was up in the northern part. Uh, I, I don't know where, how far south they would go. I don't remember. But Triple uh, A ran uh, stock cars for quite a few years and they was drawing a lot of people and, and I raced for them I don't know how many years and finally Smokey Unit called me and that moved me down with uh, NASCAR. Well your career in NASCAR shows 127 races entered over 11 years and you won I think nine times in uh, in the stock cars for in nascar now you sack you were a champion two years correct i got uh first place for two years and i got second place for another two years so it was spread out over quite a bit of time did bill france senior ever say anything to you about racing in USAC at all or did you not have any problem with that I didn't have much problem with that. Uh, Bill France, I got to know him pretty well. I owned the airport here in Griffith, Indiana, 
And uh, if you remember, Pure Oil used to be in Chicago, which is only 20 miles up the road here. And uh, so he would fly in here with his airplane and I'd drive him up to the Pure Oil uh, company and then negotiate. And I got a lot of people sitting around. And I, I think I met everybody in the Pure Oil company. It was uh, uh, at that time, it was a pretty big company. And I don't know how they do it today. I never paid no attention. But, uh, <laughs> Mr. Goldsmith, you, you mentioned Smokey Eunuch, and you did win several races for him. And, and there are so many stories about him. There are so many legends about him. Who was the Smokey Eunuch that you knew? Well, he was a pretty good friend. I uh, got to know him. He would come to the motorcycle race, and he would uh, see what I was doing and and uh, if I wanted to ask him something about the sand on the, the beach or something like that, um, he would answer me pretty good. And uh, in other words, if, if you run out close to that water, as long as there's no wa uh, water, uh, the beach was smooth and uh, more firm. So you could run just a little bit faster. So things like that. And then. Uh, if I need to change anything on the motorcycle, he would uh, give me a hand and help me with it. So that's how I become pretty good friends with him. And and then uh, right after the race at Daytona, he told me, he says, we got a stock car. I got a couple of stock cars out here. It needs uh, rebuilt. He says, there's a race in Charlotte on a, I think it was a mile high bank dirt track and he says uh we can go up there and race one of these cars if you'd want to do it i said well i'd love to work with you on it and so we worked on the car for a couple of weeks went up to charlotte and there's a mild dirt track and their famous driver at that time was uh, curtis turner yeah and uh he i had the fastest time he had the second fastest time, but we took off racing and I wanted to follow him uh, as close as I could just to see how he went through the corners and what he did. And um, it worked out real good for quite a few, oh, I forget how many miles, say 75. Then I hit a hole going into the corner sideways and I rolled the car. <laughs> Landed back on the wheels, and I still finished second in that race. So it, uh, it worked out pretty good. So you rolled the car and then kept going? Yes, that's what I did. <laughs> it landed back on its wheels, and uh, I was lucky the way it rolled and everything. And so I, uh, I kept riding and racing. Your first NASCAR Cup Series win was 1956 in Langhorne. What do you remember about that day? Well, I'd raced motorcycles at Langhorne. I knew the track very well. So I can't remember whose car I drove at that track. 
But anyway, I think I uh, I had the fastest time in the stock cars, if I remember right. He's the first or second. And uh, I went in the race. I can't remember how I finished, but I think I did pretty well. Yeah, th that was your win in 1955, of course, in a stock car at Langhorn. Oh, which... I, I did better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have always heard that Langhorn was an exceptionally tough racetrack to negotiate because it was essentially a circle. You didn't have any kind of straightaways whatsoever. It was sort of a circle, and uh, if you want to call it a, a turn, down in the first turn, it was, a, it was in a valley. It was lower. And then if you, you come around the back stretch or whatever you want to call it, it was just a big circle track. So it wasn't uh, uh, a normal racetrack that they have with straightaways. And, and that there was a little bit of a straightaway on the back stretch, and that was it. Wow. Now, 1957, you won a race at Richmond, and you were driving for Pete DiPaolo, and Fireball Roberts finished second. He was also driving for Pete, and then Marvin Panch finished third in yet another Pete DiPaolo Ford. Yes, I remember that very well. Um, it was a 100-mile race, and I knew that we was going to have to stop for fuel. So what I did, I drafted uh, uh, Fireball Roberts real close, and I let off on the gas and saved saved a lot of fuel. And uh, they wanted me to stop, and I wouldn't stop. So I finished the race, and uh, I don't think I had much fuel left, but at least that's how I won the race. And 1958 was a big year for you because you started off by winning the last race on the Daytona Beach and Road Course. What do you remember about that day? Well, I remember a little bit about it. And uh, it, uh, I just had a very good car that Smokey had built. Smokey Unic, he built the car and the engine. And I helped him work on it for about two weeks before I went to race on it with it. And uh, we tried it out. We took that car out on the back. It's north of Daytona on a highway. And there's no, no traffic on this big road. And it's a straightaway. And I run it up that straightaway all, a lot of different times to see how it would handle, how it would uh, uh, accelerate when you'd slow down and, and get gone again. So that's how we set the car up on the gear ratio and and the handling of the car. But I had a very good car when I went in that race. Now, you also qualified for your first Indianapolis 500 that year. How did it come about that you wanted to try your hand up there? Oh, it's hard to remember. I'm, I met uh, a man who was in the... I was in the aircraft business at the time, and the biggest customer I had was Jack Adams from Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, I was mentioning to him about that race. He says, well, I'll buy a car and let's, let's take it up there and race it. But he 
he bought that new type of car that they had that was a uh, it was the type of cars they're running on almost today and uh, it was just too new to take that run it there's too many problems so uh, we we and I don't think I even started to race with it Mr. Goldsmith, there were driver fatalities at Indy in three of the six years that you raced in the Indianapolis 500, either in practice or in the race. Was that something that concerned you, the safety aspect, or was that something that you were able to put out of your mind? No, you pay pretty good attention to that of how you drive in that track. And maybe you don't remember, but I was involved with a big wreck there, uh, there's about two cars that was uh, tangled up there in front of me. But there was a little gap that I could go through on top of the uh, up of the wall. So I started through that hole, and I got about halfway through the hole. And uh, Unser was running, and he hadn't slowed up for that wreck. And uh, he went up over the back end of my car and got my shoulder and uh, had two tire marks on my shoulder up here, the front wheel and the rear wheel. And that was lucky it didn't hit me in the back of the head. I I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. But that's the way I remember the race at Indianapolis. Well, you did finish twice, two times in the top five at Indianapolis, first in uh, 59 and again in 60. Who were you driving for at that time, and how did it feel to do that well at Indy? Ray Nichols had built a car here just down the road from me, and uh, he had built a car for Jack, uh, I think it was, his name was Adams, Jack Adams. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know the man over in New York. I can't remember his name, and he owned a car, and they wanted me to end up driving it. And that's how I really started in Annapolis is through Ray Nichols and the man that owned that car. At some point in the early 1960s, you came back to NASCAR and you started running. I, I wouldn't say a majority of the races, but you were doing 15 to 20 or so. NASCAR races a year. What brought you back to NASCAR? I think because we was running up here in the north and I didn't want to haul the car all the way down south because NASCAR was all the races were in the south. And uh, with the AAA run up here, it was a lot easier to run maybe 100 or 200 miles instead of maybe, what, eight or 900 miles to Daytona or <laughs> down in the south. Yeah. So that's what, why I stayed in uh, AAA up here in the north. Now, right. after you won on the beach and road course in Daytona, you also won a qualifying race at Daytona in 1966. Now, what was your reaction to that facility, that big track? Oh, I just had a good handling car, and and, uh, it steered very straight and stable. And that's why I ran pretty fast, I believe, because it had a good engine. 
It was built by Ray Nichols. And um, uh, I, I just, it was a good handling car. So that's why I ran pretty good then. Now, was the size of the track something that impressed you or got your attention? What was your reaction to going out on the racetrack itself? It didn't matter to me in racing if I was going out on a half-mile track or on a mile or two-mile track. It didn't make no difference. It was all the same to me. (laughs) (laughs) You've mentioned Ray Nichols a couple of times. Didn't you have some business interests with him? As well, yeah, he was in this business with me at the airport where we rebuilt aircraft engines, and uh, we had built it up to where they'd ship engines from Europe and all over the world and into us. We'd overhaul them, put them on a dyno, test them, make sure that everything was working good, ship them back to them, and it worked out real well for us. Now, you did wind up, as Steve mentioned, with a lot of different business interests. You owned an airport there in Indiana. You owned an aviation engine repair business. You owned some fast food restaurants. You owned a pair of thoroughbred horse ranches. Is all those businesses, <laughs> is that what maybe led you to retire as a driver? Oh, I don't know. I just, I think it's uh, all them businesses was from meeting pretty good people and to work with them was a a pleasure and uh, that's what really got me going in different businesses Uh, like Burger King uh, had quite a few Burger Kings that we ran and uh, that was a pretty good business and uh, I don't know just I just kept trying anything (laughs) <laughs> Whatever might work. <laughs> you are a, a member of the AMA Hall of Fame, and you are a member of the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America. Uh, do you look at that as uh, a crowning achievement in your racing careers? Or? No, I can't say that. Uh, I don't want to brag on me. <laughs> <laughs> I was just... Uh, Lucky I had good equipment, good people working with me, and uh, made it a lot easier to win those kind of races that uh, it moved me up into Indy cars and things like that. So yeah, I was just lucky. Now, once you did stop racing, did you miss it, or were you too busy doing other things to miss racing? I was awful busy running. I owned the airport. I had a big engine business. We were the biggest engine in the world, rebuilding aircraft engines outside of the factories. And uh, we were awful busy. So it worked out real good for us. Mr. Goldsmith, do you pay any attention to NASCAR today? And how does that type of racing strike you? Yes, I, I watched the races today, and uh, I was down in Daytona and just looked around a little bit, uh, race car, and, and I uh, I don't know. It, to me, it didn't matter 
what the car really looked like uh, for me to get in it and just and, and make it work. Because if you you got to make them work uh, to handle decent and then uh, have a good engine in it and then you can race it. Otherwise, you might as you're wasting your time. It's pretty much today like it was yesterday for you. If your car isn't handling and you don't have a good engine, you're wasting your time. Same today as it was yesterday. That's right. Same thing. So you you just got to have good equipment and good mechanics working with you. And if you can tell them a little bit what's happening in the corner, they'll work with you and you learn how to make that thing handle. So that's basically why I was pretty good with the. Uh, uh, driving a car. Good. Buzz, what made Paul Goldsmith such a legend in those early days of our sport? Oh, my gosh. I think the fact that he could do anything, uh, he was successful at anything he got involved in. You know, uh, he had a great following uh, with the motorcycles before he ever came to NASCAR. He and Smokey got hooked up. Smokey Unit got hooked up, I think. Smokey always felt that Goldsmith knew more about a car than anybody who ever drove for him. And I remember when Smokey passed away, the, the funeral notice was a beautiful uh, three-fold. Uh, I mean, it, it was really a collector's item. And it was a really high-dollar item that was given out at the funeral. And Paul Goldsmith paid for that himself. Huh. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that, you know, and you can tell there was a tremendous amount of respect that both those guys had for each other. And, uh, you know, of course, some of uh, Paul's greatest uh, uh, wins and greatest moments came behind the wheel of a smoky car. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, Mr. Goldsmith raced a little bit of everything from horses to motorcycles to stock cars to Indy cars. Where did he get that fascination with speed from? Yeah, well, the thing, he was always mechanically inclined, you know, from the time he was a kid. And I think any time you, uh, you have that uh, ability that you're going to want to go ahead and put that to use somehow. And, like, if you're going to build a lawnmower, you want the fastest lawnmower, you know, <laughs> or if you, whatever. I think it's just a natural ability that he had uh, for anything mechanical. And then, you know, you always want to see what you could get out of it. That's the impression I got talking to him, is that it was just a natural thing with him, you know, that... Uh, the same way with the horses, too, being that competitive. And you look at his life and what he's accomplished with the Burger Kings and the airport and the aviation. Right. Everything was done first class. i got to tell you a cute story. Uh, Mitzi Teague, Marshall Teague's widow, told us years ago. Now, my dad used to rent Marshall's old shop for a paint and body shop. And there was this great big, I mean, humongous, I guess it was an elm tree, an oak tree behind the shop. Big thing. You know, the, you know, the, the base was this huge round and Mitzi told us that Goldsmith had come down and it stayed with them for a while back in the fifties, late, late, late fifties. And there was a little sapling that was starting to make its way out of the ground. And Marshall hadn't put a bathroom on the shop yet. So he and Paul would take turns peeing on the sapling, trying to kill it. And that, thing, that was this huge oak tree <laughs> fertilized by Paul Goldsmith and Marshall Teague. <laughs> And this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show. <laughs> Where else are our listeners going to be able to get a, that kind of information? 
<laughs> right place at the right time. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, this was a guy who raced motorcycles for Harley Davidson, but Walter Davidson, one of the founders of the company, called him and see if he would be interested in, in racing those motorcycles. So they have lunch together, Walter and Bill Davidson, another one of the company's founders, and that pretty much set up uh, Marshall into motorcycles where he was uh, very, very successful. It was not like he just did it on a whim. It was like he was approached by some of the giants in motorcycles yeah. and, and allowed to participate. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's like Henry Ford calling you up and saying, hey, how about a ride? Yeah. I'd like to drive for me. Yeah, that, that, he's just he's just an amazing person. Even today, he's sharp as a tack. Yeah. And uh, he's still got a great sense of humor. And, uh, well, yeah, oh, you, you know, I was looking, too. I, I see in his NASCAR career, he had nine wins. Yeah. And he ran 127 races between 56 and 1969, as late as 69. He didn't run Talladega, the first Talladega race. Troy Glassback was going to drive that car, the uh, purple Dodge Daytona. And then, of course, the guy struck and they gave it to Richard Brickhouse. And Brickhouse went out and won the race. Yeah. But, uh, I don't believe Paul ever drove a winged car. And also, um, he won a convertible race, too. Yeah. And at North Wilkesboro. I thought that was kind of neat, too. Forgot that he had run the convertible. And um, he's just, yeah, the guy's just the coolest. You know, he's, he ran the, the Winston Legends race and got third. Remember the Legends in 91? Yeah, and then he ran the Fastmasters, if you remember that debacle <laughs> with, with the, the Jaguars, and he got third in that. So uh, even up, I mean, this is 1993, and he was still that competitive. He was running against a lot of guys who were a lot younger than him and uh, in a car that he was not uh, familiar with, and he still got third in probably one of the most difficult courses that has ever been set up. So he's just a winner. You know, he's like one of these guys in school that you hated because he always did everything right, you know. Yeah. At least I hated guys like that because I couldn't do anything right. But uh, but he's just one of those classic guys that was born a winner. Incredible. And he does have two USAC stock car championships. I believe 60 and 61 or 61 mm -hmm. and 60. Anyway, over those two years, he won 16 stock car races in USAC. Incredible. Ah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, he was driving for Ray Nichols back then. Yeah. Ray, uh, the Goldsmith Nichols, they made a heck of a team. And uh, the USAC, I'll tell you what, the USAC stock car circuit was no slouch. They didn't run on anything more than a mile usually. They ran a lot of dirt. They ran DeCoin and Springfield. And then, of course, they ran Milwaukee and uh, a lot of short tracks. And uh, the thing about the USAC stocks back then is that you're running against all the IndyCar guys. You know, right. Ryan McCluskey. And uh, then you had... Um, uh, A.J. Foyt. Yeah, Foyt, sure. Pinelli Jones, all those guys, you know. They were all... Uh, the uh, the stock car circuit was very much a part of their year. So, uh, you know, he was against the best of the best. What was Bill France Sr.'s reaction to Paul running both divisions? Yeah, well, uh, Paul, he, he didn't run much of NASCAR when he was running USAC. He'd run it, you know, occasionally, but it was only one or two races a year uh, at an era where you could switch back and forth. You know, just like, uh, you know, every year for the Daytona 500 back in the 60s, they would have Mario Andretti come over or Gordon John Cock or somebody like that. They even had Ennis Ireland, the Grand Prix driver, come over and try his hand at the Daytona 500. Jackie Ix tried it one time. So it uh, coming up with ACUS, the uh, governing organization, it kind of opened the door for guys to kind of switch back and forth, where before Bill used to carry a, 
a, a real sharp stick that he poke you with if he found that you were running another organization. Paul also drove for Smoky Unique, as you mentioned, and he also knew Bill France Jr. from Big Bill flying into the airport that he owned there in Indiana. And Buzz, it's a legendary fact that Smokey and Big Bill weren't exactly the closest <laughs> of friends. Was there ever a point where Paul might have gotten caught in the crossfire between the two? I wonder about that. I'll tell you what, though, there was a, uh, a car that he drove at Indy, and I believe it was called the City of Daytona Beach Special. Smokey owned it. Paul drove it. And Bill France actually contributed to the, to the cause actually contributed some money. So if anything, I think Paul might have been a peacemaker. He was never controversial. He was always very gentlemanly, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe he was the, uh, the, the, the commonsensical kind of guy that would uh, kind of balance things out for those two because if it wasn't for somebody in there playing referee, yeah. Smokey and Bill Sr. might have killed each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Goldsmith won the final beach and road course race in Daytona back in 1958. Now, what can you tell us about that day? Well, I'll tell you what, he kicked butt. I believe he led every lap. That was at, uh, Bu- or no, I'm sorry, the Pontiac that Smokey built. And it was an, it was an amazing race. Uh, I guess everybody pretty much figured it was going to be the last race on the beach because the Daytona Speedway was coming along real well with its construction. And if you get a copy of the 1958 beach race on video, they have Paul describing driving a lap around the beach course. They had an in-car camera, and then he described the whole course and how he got into the turn and got to watch out for that south turn. You know, you'll go over the bank if you're not careful. And it was really, really a cool thing. What made Indy such an attraction for Mr. Goldsmith? Oh, my gosh. And if you look at his USAC record, he only ran eight IndyCar races. And most of them, other, other than two races in Milwaukee, that's all he ever wanted to run was Indy. But, you know, you've got that lure of the history and, and the folklore, if you will going back to 1911 or 1909, depending on how you want to look at it. And I think to, to make the Indy 500 proves that you are the best of the best, that you can you know, put your credentials up against anybody. And I don't know if he told you about his shoulder, but in 1958, you know, he, he was in that big wreck with uh, uh, Pat O'Connor, and uh, Jerry Unser went over the top of Paul and ended up outside the speedway. And his, uh, I think it was right rear tire, hit Paul on the shoulder, and Paul still has that tire mark on his shoulder. That's just crazy. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, uh, he ran that Dimmler special at Indy, which was really a neat, neat, neat car. And uh, I, he never had major success there, as I recall, but, uh, but he was there. You know, he was there every year. And, and that was uh, three years it was considered, uh, the three years that he ran was considered part of the uh, Formula One circuit. The Indy 500 was part of the Formula One circuit in points awarded from 1950 to 1960. Isn't that amazing? 59 and 60, Paul finished third and fifth at Indianapolis. Ah, thank you. And he now has, he also has world championship points (laughs) to his credit. Unbelievable. It's incredible. (laughs) It's like he stuck his nose in almost everywhere, and he was successful at it, too. I did not realize that he had finished the third. He's good at finishing third. He finished third a lot. Yeah. In the, in the big <laughs> stuff. It's amazing. But, uh, boy, what a guy, though, and what a, a living legend. You know, when you talk about legends, that, that, that term is being thrown all over the place, and, and uh, a lot of it is not deserved, but, uh, but he certainly is. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, he's an amazing yeah. guy. Now, as you mentioned, he did go back to Indy. He did race in USAC. 
But in the early 1960s, he came back to NASCAR and mm-hmm. was running, uh, I wouldn't say a majority of the races, but he was, he was running quite a few each year. What brought him mm-hmm. back to NASCAR? Yeah, I think, you know, just being itchy, and uh, I'm sure he had a good deal with Chrysler, too, between he and Nichols. Uh, he ran 21 races in 1966 and 67, which is the most races he ran. And in between that, he ran the little Camaro for Smokey Eunuch in a few races in the old Grand American circuit. And uh, But, you know, being a racer, I'm sure he just wanted to keep racing. And, uh, and he really wasn't that old at the time. You know, he might have been about 40 or so in the mid-60s. And, uh, you know, I, I guess there was really no other opportunity you know, uh, uh, maybe the USAC stocks, you know, they, they were starting to wane a bit. And uh, whereas uh, NASCAR was always the king of the hill as far as he was concerned as far as stock cars. So, you know, he came back and he ran. In 69, he decided he had had enough. And he went ahead and just packed up everything and moved on back home. Was that basically because of his business interest? I mean, was he just too busy to race anymore? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And that, that was like one of the things with Cale Yarbrough, too. Cale had so many businesses and, you know, plus he was, he was missing an awful lot of family time, too. And he, he was still, you know, at the peak of his career, but he just felt it was time to pack it up. And I believe, I believe uh, that's how Paul handled it, too, is that, you know, he had the aviation and the airport right. and all the other business interests that he had. Well, Buzz, one last question on, on Paul. We have mentioned his many, many accomplishments already, and you have properly used the word legend. So... Where does Paul Goldsmith stand in the spectrum of motor racing? Oh, gosh. He, he's unique. He is so unique. If you think about it, you know, can you, can you picture anybody who had such a varied career and so successful at anything he ever did? And the fact that he's still with us at 95 years old, I mean, that alone puts him in the legend category. But uh, just the person he was, he was non-controversial, non-combative, gentleman driver, uh, just nothing but first class, great spokesperson and entrepreneur. And uh, there's just a handful of people, I think, in the history of the entire sport that could even come close to what he has accomplished. And the fact that he's still with us today, I think that makes it that much more interesting. Okay, Rambo, follow Brian. Can I do this? Kel. Can I do this? <laughs> yeah. Follow Brian, Brian Kel. Kel. Speedway, T-S-J dot. And Rick says Etsy, but I'm going to say T-S-J dot E-T-S-Y dot com. That way, people <laughs> driving down the road can write it down. <laughs> And he can't make fun of me. That's <laughs> oh, I can way. always make fun of you. <laughs> T-S-J dot E-T-S-Y Dot com. No. <laughs> okay. Well, what about Instagram and Twitter? Oh, Come well, on, man. I don't know about all that. <laughs> you can do that part. Okay. So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway. S-P-E-E-D-W-A-Y-S-C-R-E-E-N-S. Okay. How's that? That's better. Okay. Better. All right. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Yes, awesome stuff. <laughs> I, I finally got it because, you know, Rick, he texted text it to me after he made fun on his podcast about it. <laughs> but uh, he texted it to me, and he definitely got some good stuff there. I'm going to hit him up for some, some stuff here for long.
Well, guys, the May 8th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene carried coverage of the Winston 500 at Talladega. Now, on lap 153 of that event, leader Buddy Baker and second place Dale Earnhardt made their final pit stops of the day. Waddell Wilson elected to give Buddy four tires while Jake Elder went with two on Dale's car. And that put Dale in first place 15.3 seconds ahead of Buddy Baker. 15.3 seconds with, what, 35 laps to go? That's a pretty stout margin. I think Dale might have felt comfortable with that, but I can tell you one thing. Buddy Baker had that car that I think Buzz is called the Gray Ghost. At the Daytona. Gray Ghost. He absolutely ran everybody out of the ballpark <laughs> in Daytona. And he was, and so he had that same car at Talladega. Now, you know as well as I do that if Dale felt comfortable, <laughs> boy, was he mistaken because that car was stout. I don't know what what Dale did, but that thing was a beast wherever it went. That's right. Yeah. Well, Steve, Buddy said in your race lead, in your 1980 race lead, (laughs) (laughs) Buddy said, when I came out of the pits, I was a little disturbed that I couldn't see Dale anywhere on the straightaway. But as you know, this car of mine runs pretty well here. Well, that's an understatement, wasn't it? (laughs) I have a tremendous amount of belief in it and in Waddell Wilson's engines. Now, here's the thing about Buddy that day. He didn't have any radio communication with anybody. So he had to gauge his pit stops by what everybody else was doing. Oh, my gosh. And then he had to estimate where Dell was on the track while trying to chase him down. Buddy said, I was running blind there for a while. The only way I knew I was catching Dell was when I would go by the grandstand in the fourth turn (laughs) and see the people cheering and waving their hats. That's great. <laughs> Is that not awesome? Uh, leave it to Buddy. He always had the best quotes. <laughs> he was amazing. You know, all those Earnhardt fans, if they would have been thinking, they would have just sat there and been quiet and, and yeah. not made a move, and maybe Dale would have another win at Talladega. <laughs> now, finally, Buddy tucked in behind Dale on lap 185. That was three laps from the end, and then passed him in the third term. Obviously, this is Dale Earnhardt we're talking about, mm-hmm. and he wasn't going to give up just yet. On the last lap, Buddy Baker kind of used Buddy Arrington's lap car as a pick on the back stretch, and then going in turn three, Dale got under Buddy coming into the trioval, and then they basically drag raced all the way to the finish, and Dale Earnhardt was about to Buddy's door handle. Mm. At, mm-hmm. at the checkered flag, and the official margin of victory for Buddy Baker was about three feet. Oh, my so gosh. When you beat Dell Earnhardt at Talladega, even that early in his career, that was just his second full-time year on the circuit. You've done a day's work. Amen. And Buddy had the big old right foot to, to do it, too. You know? That's exactly right. And <laughs> so he, he said he was a little disappointed when Waddell gave him four tires. And Dale took on two and got that big lead on him. But Waddell said after the race, something that I think every newspaper man there put in their story because it was so significant. He said, I gave him four tires, even though I thought we could finish on two. I gave him four tires because I didn't want to take a chance with a driver's life. That's exactly what he said. Isn't that something? 
Yeah, a lot no. of respect. A lot of respect for Waddell after that day. Well, you're not kidding. Buddy said after the race, Dale is all anybody wants to handle. This stuff about cutting people off on the track might be okay, but eventually it's going to come back to you. I left him a place to pass. It wasn't much, but he had room. (laughs) (laughs) So that right there, that quote right there is a great example of just how much racing has changed because at that time, you didn't block on the racetrack. Mm-hmm. All right. Now you might have used up a you might have used up some racetrack and made your car a little bit wider, but you weren't turning from lane to lane to lane in order to keep people behind you. Dale said after the race, I wanted to give Buddy a shot on the backstretch, but I couldn't. Car sixty seven, meaning Buddy Arrington, was in the way, but it wasn't anything intentional. I wanted to be in the lead when we came off turn four and have him try to pass me when he came into the trival. I tried to pass him inside, but he had a bit more horsepower, I reckon. My car was working good, but it just wasn't enough to get by him. Now, the awesome finish between Buddy and Dale was one store in this race, as I mentioned in the intro, but blown engines were also a huge factor in this event. Of the 42 cars that started the race, 18 fell out with some sort of engine problem. Now, Buzz and Steve... What was it about Talladega that chewed up engines like that? Was it just because they had to be cranked so tight yes. in order to make such horsepower? Yes. That the engine broke? builders were trying to gain horsepower at sure. Daytona and Talladega. That was the name of the game back then. And so they would push to the limits of those engines to try to get as much horsepower and speed out of them as they possibly could. And when you do that, you are obviously testing your engine by testing by taking it to the max in preparation that's probably what the problem was yes sir and they didn't have a gear ratio rule back then either so you know however much uh however brave you were you know that's that's the gear you put in the car but i mean they just widened them so tight and you know the, the the components aren't near what we have today and you know it's a whole different technology it just depended on how tight you wanted to wind the rubber band. <laughs> That's right. That's a good analogy. Hey, a good analogy. Well, you know, first time for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Waltrip lasted just four laps in this race. He was the first car out before his engine let go, mm-hmm. which I am sure thrilled his soul <laughs> final year with Digard. <laughs> More salt in the wound, shall we say. <laughs> you think he got a little cranky after that, uh, into that race? Not Daryl. No. No <laughs> way. <laughs> Dave Marcus popped the wall on lap 38 and had to go to the garage for repairs. Dave said somebody blew an engine, of course, going mm-hmm. into the third turn, and I threw up my hand to let the cars behind me no, to slow down. Then somebody hit me in the ass. It's going to be right. <laughs> Dave Marcus, ever with the quote. <laughs> he did eventually repair his car. He did eventually go back out on the track, but then his engine let go. <laughs> oh gosh. I burned a piston. When a car is set up to run up front and you have to slow down, it can't help but hurt the motor. At Talladega, you need to run flat out or not at all. Yeah, what did we say earlier about engine preparation? Yes, sir. That's exactly what he's talking about. Yep. Go or blow. 
here's a couple of names that we don't often mention here on the podcast. A few laps after Dave hit the wall, Bill Ellswick blew an engine and was coasting around the track. When Don Whittington's engine cut loose, Don spun and hit Bill. Gee, <laughs> holy cow. Isn't that crazy? Whittington said, my engine blew in turn three, and then I tagged some poor guy who is only going about 10 miles an hour down on the <laughs> Bill Ellswick responded, me? I was just riding around trying to get into the pits, and pow! <laughs> Don Blue came down and hit me. J.D. McDuffie blew both of the engines that he took with him to Talladega. Oh. He borrowed an engine from Benny Parsons' team, and he promptly ran the fastest qualifying lap of his career during second-round yeah. time trials at 191.673 miles an hour. Now, apparently, he had to give that engine back. He just got the engine for qualifying. I'll be darned. But oh. that kind of speaks to the story that we mentioned last week where racers kind of helped each other out yeah. in, in yeah. times of need. So that put J.D. McDuffie 21st on the starting grid. That was the fastest speed in the second round of qualifying. So he was able to start 21st. And the two engines that he had blown, they apparently took those two engines and pieced together something for him to use in the race. And then it blew up after just 19 laps. That's a cool story about J.D. being able to borrow an engine from Benny Parsons' team. Well, that's the way it was back then. And I'm sure Benny's team would think the same thing that I do. Can you think of a driver who does not need to lose two engines at one race? Other than J.D. McDuffie? I mean, come on. Everybody knew his situation, and I think Ben Nishin was more than willing to help because of that. Ty Scott had a bet with David Pearson, who sat on the pole for the event. Ty went to David, and he was evidently feeling pretty sporty, and he bet him a steak dinner that he would qualify within three hundredths of a second of David. Three hundredths of a second. What? Was Ty <laughs> drinking? Okay. <laughs> so being ever the sportsman, Dave gave him 25 one hundredths of a second. <laughs> but when it came down to it, Ty wound up about 30 one hundredths of a second slower than David. Now that still was pretty good. And it was good enough for Ty to start ninth in the event. Now, David said he's telling a lie. He thought he could run within 25 hundredths of me. He just lost. I like the money for winning the poll, but I'm going to enjoy that steak dinner even more. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> now, here's the thing. David collected $6,000 for the poll. Oh, All my right? gosh. Is that right? But that steak meant more. <laughs> and that right there is what it means to be a racer. <laughs> yes. yes. And knowing how David felt about money, that really says a lot. <laughs> Now, I, again, I love, I love, I love the details in these newspapers of all the issues of Grand National saying, Winston Cup saying that Robin Scarberry could have possibly have chosen or picked or mentioned. He picked this one. Now, in the casual comments section, Steve, of the newspaper of this issue on page four, there's a very short note that David Quinn of Senate New York was one of the winners of a one-year subscription in a photo contest 
that had run a few weeks earlier. Now, it turns out that David Quinn is the brother of Eric Quinn from QWare. How about that? Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> now, even more than that, check this out. Eric actually used David's name because the contest was evidently for new subscribers only. So it was, in fact, Eric <laughs> who won the contest. <laughs> so Eric Hollywood Quinn, couldn't make that up. Hollywood couldn't make that up. Amen. So listen, Eric Quinn, I know you're out there listening. I believe you owe somebody some money for that subscription that you illicitly won. <laughs> He'll clear his conscience, you know. I'm sure. Yeah, it's been, you know, well, they clear my conscience. That's what. Yeah, okay. <laughs> In this issue, Sterling Marlin, who had run just six Winston Cup races at this point, he was the spotlight driver. In this issue, now, I'm sure that this wasn't a coincidence, but his dad Cuckoo happened to be the In Focus photo. Mm. And let's just say that Sterling in his photo looks very young. Uh, I mean, okay. he is a fresh-faced rookie, right? <laughs> and Cuckoo does not look <laughs> <laughs> very young at all. He's got the map of the world on his face. <laughs> Cuckoo has always looked like that. <laughs> I've never seen him when he didn't. Straight out of the womb, he probably looked like that. <laughs> Gene Granger. Buzz, I know that's a name that you remember. Oh, my gosh. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a lanky kind of fella. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's it. <laughs> had a rather large beak. <laughs> Gene Granger wrote a column in this issue about the strange sights that you encounter along the way while working in racing. Things that can only happen once in a lifetime. <laughs> 1969, he was at Michigan during a rain delay. And there were wreckers and other assorted vehicles trying to drive the track. And a helicopter was even brought in to kind of buzz the racetrack. Hey, buzz the racetrack. Oh, that's cute. I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) The helicopter was brought in to kind of help drive the track. That was one thing. But then the rotor of the helicopter somehow managed to hit the boom of one of the wreckers. Holy cow. And crashed. Right there on the racetrack. Now, luckily, this is the this is the crazy thing. Nobody got hurt. Amazing. Then at Talladega, a maintenance truck driver made the mistake of stopping on the banking. Yeah. In the turns. And that truck promptly rolled down the track. Yeah. I've seen that. Yes, sir. We were sitting on the backstretch that day. Bobby Allison had blown an engine. This guy came out. And Sonny King, the Ford dealer, he had given all these – Crew cabs, real high four by fours, you know, real high center of gravity, not really conducive to uh, running the high banks at a slow speed. And that guy did. He slowed down for some reason, and that sucker rolled all the way down. The guy in the back got thrown out and got a broken arm. But other than that, nobody was hurt, but the truck totally destroyed. And we couldn't believe what we were seeing at the time. That was unbelievable because it seemed to happen in slow motion. But that guy got a good lesson on how to drive the high banks. (laughs) (laughs) When I was working for NASCAR, I had the chance to take a VIP out on the racetrack at Daytona. Uh-huh. And David Green was in the passenger seat, and this guy was actually driving. And I was in the back seat. Uh-huh. And this guy, when he came around to the front stretch and then headed into turn one for the first time, mm-hmm. he kind of froze going into the turn. 
oh my gosh. And I said, keep going. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> For the love of Pete Rose, please keep going. <laughs> well, you know, Big Bill, he loved to take folks around the track. And it, you didn't even have to be a VIP. I mean, I had a friend that came in there one day to buy tickets. And Bill and Annie were in there. And, and he said, you ever been around the track? Said, no, sir. Well, come on. Let's go for a ride. So he took him around. And he loved to get right between the first and second turn, third and fourth turn, whatever, and turn around and talk to the people in the back seat. <laughs> Get your hands back on the wheel. You know, and, you know, they didn't realize the car basically drove itself, you know, but he loved to scare people. <laughs> Guys, I know that this is an open-ended question, but what is the strangest thing that you have ever seen at a racetrack? Steve, what you got? For me, it was just recently. As a matter of fact, it was at Daytona. It was under caution for a rain delay. And those brand new, what they call them, uh, Buzz Air Titans or something oh, like that. Yes, yeah, those, those big old dryers out there, yep. shooting flame and everything, which way, was on the track trying to dry it. Now, out of the pits, remember this is under caution, comes Juan Pablo Montoya. <laughs> remember this? <laughs> and Dern, if he didn't, he hit that big ass thing. <laughs> 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 under caution on the track. Uh, who could imagine anything like that? Amazing. Amazing. You figure what the odds were at two and a half mile track, that yeah. thing to be like a dot out there on the track. Right. And he came out of the pits under caution, and I think something broke in the suspension, I think. Yeah. But he just plowed right into that. Right into it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, Buzz, uh, what do you got? Well, a few years after that car or that truck flipped down off the bank, we were on the back stretch of Talladega again. <clears throat> sitting on the top row, and all of a sudden we hear all this, and it was during a caution period, and we hear all this whooping and hollering and everything, and we just have everybody's pointing and looking out behind the track, and here's a guy with a Smokey and the Bandit T-top, and his girlfriend is sitting right there on the top of the T-top without a top on. She was topless in the T-top, and boy, they were just having a grand old time just whipping up and down that parking lot, and all of a sudden, here comes the sheriff, you know, and it's just like you're watching the movie. There's a girl waving, and the guy with the, the smoking the bandit hat on, and here comes the sheriff behind him, and it was a, it was about the funniest thing we'd ever seen. I don't think the guy <laughs> ever got caught, but I thought, ah, that's Talladega for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the strangest things that I've ever seen. Certainly one of the funniest. New Hampshire one year, and I don't remember what happened, but there was a red flag, and the car stopped on the back stretch, and Dell Earnhardt happened to be parked right at the gate where cars come in and out of the racetrack. And the truck that had been used to pump out all the porta johns was parked on the outside of the racetrack. <laughs> and it somehow, some way developed a leak. Oh, no. And it was out running across the racetrack. <laughs> right under Dale Earnhardt's race car. <laughs> and to hear his radio transmissions... <laughs> <laughs> it was straight out of Christmas vacation. The crapper's full. The crapper's full. And you could just hear Dale Earnhardt in your minds nuts over this Portageon pumper oh, developing a leak under his race car. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. You can't make that up either. No. No. Uh -huh. Oh, that's great. Now, guys, also in this issue, there was a news story about LG DeWitt making the decision to close the race team that he had fielded since the mid-1960s. Benny Parsons had won the 1973 Winston Cup Championship and a total of 12 races for 
for LG. And LG, of course, was at the time, he was the president of both Rockingham and Atlanta. Now, Joe Milliken had finished second to Dale Earnhardt for the Rookie of the Year award the year before. But with LG closing up shop, it left Joe without a ride. Joe said in the story, the Millikens have a tendency to survive. No, I'm not taking it hard. We haven't done well. I'm young and I'm grown. These things happen. Mr. DeWitt is taking it hard. I've tried to tell him it isn't the end of the world. Times get hard. The expense got more than Mr. DeWitt could or wanted to pay. Now, Steve, I did not know this. A story in the March 13th issue of Grand National Scene just a few weeks before this said that Bobby Hudson, the team's crew chief, was actually under investigation by the FBI for buying four stolen race cars. Now, that's one thing, Steve, but news of the investigation was leaked when Tom Higgins got a call in the press box from a woman using the name Bernadette Green. And she said that Bobby and Joe would be arrested at the conclusion of that race. Now, Steve, do you remember that? Yeah, Tom was very upset because he did not know what to do. First of all, he didn't know who this Bernadette Green was and didn't know if he could be lying. And he said he just heard what she said and he felt powerless to do anything because they're so uncertain of the truth. Well, evidently, nothing came of all this because Bobby did go on to have a long career in the sport. He was Bobby Allison's crew chief for a time. And I, Buzz, was he a NASCAR official at one time? Yes, Bobby Hudson? he sure was. Yep. Yeah. So, sure yeah, I remember, I remember Bobby. And, yeah, so nothing ever came of this. Mr. DeWitt was asked if those rumors had anything to do with the fact that he was closing his team. And in no uncertain terms. He absolutely, positively, flatly denied that those rumors had anything to do with him closing the team. He said, absolutely not. Bobby bought a hot car. I could have bought one or you could have. There were insinuations that we had stolen parts and were using them on our race cars. It hurts that some people pointed the finger at us, but the FBI hasn't found anything. I've investigated, and I haven't found anything. LG DeWitt was known as a straight shooter. And Buzz, if I'm not mistaken, he had a trucking firm. Yes, he did. I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah, I I think maybe that uh, the trucking industry might have been in something of a lull at that particular time. And that's one reason he had to shed the expense of a race team. Yeah. Yeah. He made his his presence known while he was there, though. I mean, getting the championship and, uh, you know, and 12 wins, that's pretty darn good for an independent team. Absolutely. Hello, I'm Phil Parsons, and you're listening to the Scene Ball Podcast. Buzz, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but Steve, I got my Andy Griffith Show custom diecast car from my buddy Daniel Collins, and man, I am completely blown away. This thing is awesome. Yeah, all is right with the world, isn't it, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Now that I've got my diecast car, it's only the third one that I own, and it is now my favorite diecast car, and it will remain my favorite diecast car <laughs> because it features Andy and Barney and Opie. <laughs> now, uh, what, what kind of car is it, Rick? 
Dave Blaney ran a car at Charlotte in the year 2010 right. that featured a Andy Griffith show paint scheme. Oh, son of a gun. And oh, so yeah. it was a one-off deal. And that I know of, there were no die casts produced or, or whatever. So I don't know why they even ran wow. the paint scheme. But, you know, I'm a big fan of the show. Mm-hmm. And I saw it on Facebook a few weeks ago mm-hmm. and figured that I would never have a chance to come up with one of these. And turns out that Daniel was actually making the car for me because he's a fan of the show. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah that was cool. Shazam. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, listen, Buzz, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure to catch up with you and I hope you're doing well, man. And I hope you stay healthy and and, and all this craziness, but man, it's good to see you. Well, I appreciate that. And if I get up your way, I'll look you up. And if you come down my way, you can look me up. How's that? That'd be great. great, Good to see you again, partner. Hey, same here, pal. Good to see you too. Buzz, if there's anything that you want to jump in on, just feel free. Oh, cool. Uh, this is just a conversation. We're, okay. It's not a script or anything like that. Just so just, just wait for my turn. Do what? I didn't know if I should just sit in the corner and wait for my turn. <laughs> hey, jump right in. Jump right in over Steve anytime. <laughs> hey, wait a minute.